So, take one sip real quick. Since, um, actually even before I came on as the pastor, when I believed God had confirmed this calling on my life, I started praying uh, a lot about, hey God, what, what would you want? What would you have for this church? Um, what's the vision? What's the direction that you have for this church specifically? So for the last few months, I've been praying about that and talked to the board, uh, talked to several of their, um, of pastors and leaders and mentors and things like that and just kind of capturing the heart and the vision, uh, for the church and then putting words on it. Um, so, uh, we're going to come out with a new vision and mission statement for this church, for Calvary Chapel Running Springs. And I believe you'll be hopefully pleasantly uh, surprised and happy that it's really ultimately the mission that Jesus gave the disciples. Okay, so um, playing with words here. This is the new vision vision for our church, Calvary Chapel Running Springs. Turn the world right side up, okay? Turn the world right side up. What does that mean, turn the world right side up? Well, let me show you where I get it from first, and then I'll explain. It's Acts chapter 17, verse 6. All this stuff segues into the teaching today. Acts chapter 17, verse 6. We see the disciples were doing ministry in Thessalonica. Paul was there and they cause an uproar and the people, the leaders, the Jews specifically, they get upset. And look what happens in verse six. It says, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers. They're looking for the disciples. They're looking for the church. Okay. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Okay, look what they said. They said, these are those who have turned the world upside down. There's a negative connotation here. These are the Jews and they're saying, hey, they're changing our world. They're breaking our traditions. They're coming against our values. And they were upset about this because they were stuck in their man-made religions and traditions. So the disciples, they weren't really turning their world upside down. They were turning their world right side up, meaning they were trying to get their world back to their roots, back to their creator, back to the person of Jesus Christ. So the disciples in engaging in ministry, preaching the gospel, making the disciples, they were transforming the world around them. Okay, and that's what this call is to do. Turn the world right side up is really to impact our world for the name of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the gospel. It's the calling to be world changers. Okay, because we see uh, there's a lot of problems in this world, right? Got a lot of things going on, a lot of stuff on the news. And there were a lot of problems in, in that day. But we saw what Jesus did with just 12 guys. He literally transformed the world. Not completely. It's still happening today. Just as he kind of handed off his baton of ministry, the disciples continued to hand off those batons of ministry. And now here we are, 2,000 plus years later. But the mission isn't different. It hasn't changed. The calling to discipleship, the calling to preach the gospel remains the same. And it's the Great Commission. 
And that's where the mission statement comes in. So how do we fulfill this vision? That's what the mission statement answers. The vision is, hey, big picture, what are we called to? We're called to turn the world right side up, to make the world look more like Jesus. Remember what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. Hey, I pray, Father, that you don't take the disciples out of the world. Okay, I don't I call I'm not I don't want them to be isolated and secluded. I pray that you would use them in the world that they exist presently and the world would begin to look more like its creator and less like its fallen state. So how do we fulfill this vision? It's essentially the mission that God gave the disciples. And I had some help with this. I appreciate that help Um, mission statement for this church is now knowing him and making him known through the word and discipleship. Knowing him and making him known through the word and discipleship. That's how we accomplish the vision. The mission accomplishes the vision for us to turn the world right side up, for us to transform the world around us. Around us, it starts with us. It starts with us as individuals. It starts with knowing him, knowing him. It's first John chapter four, verse seven. It says, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. That word know is that Greek word that we talk about so often. That's that gnosko word, that experiential, intimate knowledge. It's not just like a, how I know um, members of this church, it's more like how I know my wife. There's an intimacy there. It's the same word that's used. That's how God calls us to know him. Not that we just know about him. Not that we just read the Bible and say, oh, this is what God used to do and yada, yada, yada. That's not the knowledge that he's calling us to. He's calling us to an experiential, intimate knowledge because the word of God is living and powerful and it isn't just a history book. It applies to us today. So it starts with this intimate pursuit of Jesus for us to change the world around us. We got to be changed first. That transfer Transformation has to happen in us and it happens through our intimate pursuit of the Lord. So that's where that knowing him part comes into play. It says knowing him and making him known through the word and discipleship. As we're growing in knowledge, intimate knowledge of him, we're called to make him known. Again, this was the calling. This was the mission that Jesus gave the disciples. We see it's the great commission in Mark chapter 16, verse 16. Jesus said the disciples to the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Okay. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's still the same mission that God has for the church today. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. This is where the knowing him and making him known through the word happens. As we know him, as we know his word, we're called to spread his word. It's what he's called each of us to do, to share the word of God. It's that word that everybody gets scared of called evangelism. So many people hear that word evangelism. They're like, dude, not me. I'm not an evangelist. Well, let me tell you that the Bible says that we're all called to do the work of an evangelist. Yeah, certain people have the gifting of an evangelist, but we're all called to operate as an evangelist. So I'm not just going to say, hey, here's the, here's the vision. Here's the mission. Go. No, 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 no. 
See, with this call to making him known through the word, through spreading the word, I have a calling in that too. And my calling uh, is really laid out in Ephesians chapter 4 to edify and equip the body of Christ. So this evangelism, I'm not just going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to teach you how to do it. And then I'm going to show you how to do it. See, Christmas Eve, we're going to have a service here. Okay, we're going to have a Christmas Eve service. We're still working out timings. It'll probably be six o'clock. But what I'm going to have made is little door hangers. Okay, and these little door hangers are invitations to the Christmas Eve service. But uh, about December 11th, after service on Sunday, um, we're going to do a little outreach with these door hangers. And my hope, my heart isn't that we just go up to doors and put the door hangers on the doors, but that we actually knock on the doors and we talk to these people. See, the door hanger, it's an invitation, but what it really is, is it's a tool to have a conversation to initiate a conversation. Hey, I'm not just going to go up to your door and say, hey, I came here to share Jesus with you. That's okay, but sometimes people get the wrong vibe there, right? Because we have a lot of different groups, different churches that do things like that. Um, so that's not what it is. We're inviting people to the Christmas Eve service. This is just the, I got something to talk to you about. This is the Christmas Eve service. It's happening December 24th. Um, obviously Christmas Eve at six o'clock, we might have some cookies and yeah, hot chocolate and things like that and a message. Uh, but through that invitation, the hope is that we share the gospel too. Uh, as much as you're willing to and as confident and bold as you feel like doing, it can be anything from, hey, Jesus loves you and he really wants you to come to this. Okay, that's not really the fullness of the gospel. Okay, or it can really, we can get down and recite scripture and say, hey, this is what the gospel means. This is what Jesus did for each of you. And this is what he did for me. And this is how my life has changed. And I'm going to go through um, the next four weeks. We're going to do a series on discipleship and evangelism. Okay, we're taking a break from Matthew. Um, so we're going to do discipleship first for the first two weeks, and then we're going to do evangelism. We're going to do it backwards so that when we do this outreach on December December 11th, it's fresh in everybody's mind. So everybody's like, we've just been learning about evangelism and sharing the gospel. We have some confidence. We have some boldness, and now we're able to move forward with this thing. Then there's no longer the excuse of, I don't, I feel ill-equipped to do this. Now, there's a reality that sharing the gospel for your, maybe some of you, maybe it's your first time, maybe you do it uh, weekly, but there's a fear that's connected to that. My heart and my hope is to equip you and that the Holy Spirit would embolden you so that we can we can do this thing and, and be what the church has called us to be. Now, that first part, making him known through the word, but also discipleship, because that was part of the Great Commission too. That's what Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Okay, we see Mark's account. He says, preach the gospel. Matthew's account, he says, make disciples. He really said both of those things. He said, go and preach the gospel and go and make disciples. That's the, again, mission that God gave the disciples. It's the mission that God gave the church. We're all called to be disciples that make disciples. Now, you might read about the disciples in the New Testament and say, dude, I can't do that. That's not me. I'm not 
I'm not called to that. Well, let me uh, assure you that you are called to be a disciple and to make disciples. That's all of our callings. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to quit your job and sell your house and your car and all those things. It's not saying, I'm not saying that if Jesus tells you that, then that's between you and him. But it's the reality that we're called to make disciples. We're called to be disciples that make disciples that can uh, exist in our homes. It could exist in our jobs. It can exist in our ministries. It can ultimately exist anywhere. So we're going to start off with a series through the book of Philemon. Some say Philemon. I say Philemon. You can say whatever you want. I'm going to say Philemon. Um, Now, what we're going to see in this text uh, is essentially Paul is discipling Philemon. We have to consider this. Philemon uh, had a church in his house uh, in the city of Colossae, and there's an issue that arose, okay? There's this guy, uh, Onesimus, uh, who was Philemon's slave, and he actually stole from Philemon, Okay, he stole from Philemon and Paul meets him in a Roman prison and brings him to the Lord. And that's why Paul says Onesimus is now my brother. He's not just your slave. He's a brother in the Lord. Philemon's a believer as well. So Paul, he's going to invest in Philemon through the form of an epistle. Okay, but before we get into the book of Philemon, vision, mission, okay, turn the world right side up. How? By knowing him and making him known through the word and discipleship. See, Proverbs tells us that without vision, a people perish, okay? And I take that seriously. I take it literally. We can come to church on Sundays and, you know, hear some inspired worship and hear a good word, but where's the church going? If there's not vision, it says the people will perish. And who is supposed to, 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 to seek vision? It's me. Who's supposed to give vision? It's the Lord, right? So if we're not uh, on the same page about the direction that the church is going, then it's a problem. See, I can cast vision, but if you guys aren't on board with the vision and with the mission, it's not going to be that effective. So I ask you, I petition to you to help me with this. I'm not going to do this alone. I can't do this alone. I need this to be like part of your DNA. Like you wake up like, man, I'm waking up today to glorify God however I can, whether it's sharing with someone about my faith or investing into my son or daughter or my friend or family member, whatever it may be. Um, But I need uh, the people of the church to be on board with the vision that God's given the church. Amen? We on board? Okay, sweet. Let's make disciples. Okay, so Philemon... It's right before Hebrews. Um, it's a tiny, tiny little epistle. And we'll spend two weeks on this little epistle. Um, we'll only go through the first four verses today. Um, I had to cut a lot of, a lot of stuff last service. Um, hopefully I don't have to cut as much this service. Luke cut a song for me just so I'd have a little more time. Say thank you, Luke. All right, 
So this epistle is believed to be written around 63 AD. Paul is likely in a Roman prison. He, we know he's a, a prisoner at this point. He's probably in Rome under Caesar Nero, uh, that same time frame that we see at the end of the book of Acts. So this is believed to be written right around that time frame. And he meets this guy Onesimus, who was a slave of Philemon in prison somehow, some way. And he shares the gospel with him. And now Onesimus is a brother in the Lord. So now Paul is going to encourage Philemon essentially to take him back. Okay, to take Onesimus back. See, there's an issue in this epistle. See, Paul, he disciples uh, Titus and Timothy through some epistles. That's where we see first and second Timothy and Titus. But this discipleship, it's, it's more personal because there's a specific issue that's happening. So that's why I'd like to use this epistle to focus on discipleship. And on top of it, it's short and sweet. So we won't spend months on it. We can get the idea out and then as we move forward in this vision and mission, I can continue to encourage and we can tie it back into some of these things. So the title of this teaching is The Art of Discipleship. The Art of Discipleship. <clears throat> now, don't take this the wrong way. What I'm not saying is that there's a specific method and only one method to disciple people, to invest in them. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that when you look at the best disciplers, the best examples that we have in the New Testament is Jesus Christ, number one, and probably Paul, number two. Okay, so we're going to look at Paul specifically, tie some things back to Jesus and look at how they did discipleship. What was their method? What was the art? Because we'll see by the end of this that there is somewhat of an, an art to it. Um, and it doesn't always mean that one method is going to work for every individual. And I'll talk about that thing. We About those things, we have to be open-minded because everyone's different. But the title remains the same. The Art of Discipleship. Philemon... Verse 1, let's pray again. Lord, we thank you for this epistle, God. We pray that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us and give us the boldness to be disciples that make disciples because that's ultimately what we're called to do, God. So I pray that we would walk away feeling a, a little more equipped, knowing that we could talk about this for the rest of our lives. But with the short time that we have, that we would just be inspired, um, not by me, but by you. In your name, amen. All right, Philemon chapter 1, sorry, it's not really, it's only one, it's not even really a chapter. Philemon 1, okay? Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Okay, this is how Paul starts the epistle. I'm a prisoner. Prisoner of who? Christ Jesus. Now, Paul was a prisoner in Rome, a prisoner under Caesar, but that's not how he introduces himself. He introduces himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Why? Because regardless of the authority that's been placed in his life in the person of Caesar Nero, he recognized that Jesus is his ultimate authority. And he recognizes that even in prison, that Jesus is sovereign over that. And he has a reason for that. He has a purpose for that. That. Paul's not going through this as a victim. Like, man, I was imprisoned and I was just trying to serve the Lord. He's like, no, no, no. I'm not a prisoner of Nero. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. He 
He's the one that allowed me to be captive and put in prison for a specific purpose. And part of that purpose was to make disciples. See, even while Paul is in prison, most of the epistles that he wrote was while he was in prison. So even in the midst of being in prison, what is he doing? He's engaging in ministry. He's focused on other people. He's asking himself likely, how can I glorify God in my circumstances, even though they might be difficult? He's not worried or concerned about himself. He's completely others focused. Now he says here again, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. As a prisoner of Christ Jesus, it's our duty to invest in others. Which brings me to the first of five. Discipleship is an act of obedience. Discipleship is an act of obedience. Prisoners don't have options. Prisoners just do what they're called to do. And one of the things that Jesus tells us to do as a good master, hey, I want you to invest in other people. I want you to make disciples of other people. We mentioned it with the mission statement, but again, it's Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It's a calling, it's a command from the good master, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his imprisonment, he's not, again, concerned about himself. He's completely focused on making disciples, and that's why he's writing this epistle to Philemon. I wonder... Had God not allowed Paul to be imprisoned so many times, would we have the epistles that we have today? We probably wouldn't. You know, God's sovereign over that, but he was sovereign over Paul's imprisonment, and that gave him enough time to actually write these epistles to invest in other people. So we see what the enemy intended for evil, God used for good, and now we have these beautiful pages in the New Testament to learn from, and that's what we're doing. We're learning from this, specifically how Philemon is being discipled by Paul, the prisoner of Christ. Christ. But even in that first verse, look what it says here. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. It's interesting. Why is he mentioning Timothy? Timothy's with him while he's writing this epistle to Philemon. So not only is Paul investing into Philemon through this epistle, he says, hey, Timothy, I want you to be with me during this. And Timothy is likely right there as he's pinning this epistle. So he's not only discipling Philemon, he's discipling Timothy. And he's discipling Timothy about how to disciple others. See, Paul, in the midst of prison, he's completely others-focused, not just focusing on discipling Philemon, but he's with Timothy investing in him as well. Which brings me to the second point. Discipleship requires a heart for others. Discipleship requires a heart for others. Now this heart for others is expressed through investment. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul, encouraging this young pastor, he says this to him. 2 Timothy 2.2 2, 
And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Look what he says. Timothy, I didn't invest all this time. I didn't invest all this knowledge, all this information into you just for you, just so you can know all these things. No, no, no. I invested these things into you so that you can take those things and invest them into other faithful men. The things the Lord teaches us so often, they're not just for ourselves, but to be invested in to other people. God's not into just investing in people to get them all puffed up on knowledge. He invests into us information, knowledge, intimacy, all these things so that we can share those things with other people. And this is what Paul essentially is doing with Timothy in this epistle. He's taking the things that he's speaking to Philemon and he's bringing Timothy alongside so that he can understand how to do discipleship. That's one of the ways of discipling, to simply just bring people alongside in doing the things that you're already going to be doing. Now, it could be as simple as going to the grocery store and bringing somebody that you kind of have a heart for and want to invest into. It could uh, be bringing someone to the gym. I, I do that a lot. Uh, you could be bringing someone to, um, to, to an opportunity where discipleship is actually happening. And I would do this all the time with uh, different staff members and interns in Patmos specifically. But if we had an issue with a student, I could just go to that student and say, hey, um, this is what you're doing. This is what the word says. Need a change. No, it's a little more gracious than that. Um, sometimes. Um, but we, I, in my investment of them, often what I would do was I would bring in another staff member or another intern because I want them to get the investment as well. Do you see how we're discipling this student? I want you to learn from this. So I'd take them under my wing and say, hey, I'm discipling this person. I want you to learn from this discipleship. And now after a few times, I can let them do it. And I can watch them and be like, yeah, that was that was good. Or maybe you could have said this or maybe you should have said that. And that's what Paul's doing here with Timothy. He's discipling Philemon, but he brings Timothy alongside and says, hey, I want you to be a part of this so that you can understand partially what discipleship looks like. Pastor Chet used to do this with me all the time. He's a very extreme man. I love him to death, but he would literally take me everywhere with him. He would take me... Um, on these ridiculously long runs with him all the time, denying our flesh, right? He would take me to um, to grocery stores with him. He would take me to uh, discipleship opportunities with him. He would take me to funerals that he did. He would take me to weddings that he did so I could learn from him. He would take me to business meetings. He would take me to all kinds of stuff and I would just watch. Sometimes I was bored. Sometimes it was exciting, depending on what we were doing. But I would learn so much from just watching his life because he was intentional about it. He would literally even take me on family vacations with the purpose of showing me how to do family. And I bring so much of that into my family. He was such a servant of his family, the way he invests in his kids and his wife and all these things. And that was something that he invested into me that I have invested into others because he doesn't do that for any other reason than that's what he sees in the Bible. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul's doing here with Timothy, just taking him under his wing and saying, hey, this is how you do discipleship so that they're encouraged, so that they're equipped. See, 
He has this heart for Philemon. He has this heart for Timothy. And we're really not going to invest into others if we don't have a heart for people. Now, I can say that and you can say, well, I have a heart for some people. There's some people that I got a big heart for because they're like me or um, I just like them or whatever the reason may be. And I have a heart for the people I have a heart for and I don't have a heart for the people I don't have a heart for. But let me tell you that you have no idea who God's going to bring into your life for you to invest into. Now, you might have your family members. You might have your friends. You might have a coworker at your job that you actually absolutely despise. He might bring the most unlikely candidate in your life and knock on your heart and say, that one. He did this to me one time. I was in Calvary House before Patmos and it was later. I was in um, kind of in more of a leadership position at that point. And one day this new guy comes in. His name was Ryan with the most bitter face I had ever seen in an individual in my life. Just straight anger. You, we actually called him stone face for real because his face was always just like, I'm going to kill someone. And I'm like, dang, man, what's that guy's deal? Lord knocks on my heart go talk to him. Like, no, come on. Can't I talk to someone that's more like me? Like I'm a smiley guy. Can't I talk to another smiley guy? He's like, no, 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 no. You're going to talk to Stoneface. You're going to invest in him. So I go over to Ryan and I start talking to him and just talking to him about how great it is there and yada, yada, yada. He's like, I hate this place already. I don't even believe in God. I'm like this is a Christian ministry. How do they let this guy in? He doesn't even believe in God. He's an atheist. So I'm like, oh, great Lord. Thanks. Thanks for this little challenge. Um, <laughs> so over time, I, I started having conversations with him. And uh, he was one of the reasons that I got so um, so so inspired by, by apologetics. One of the reasons I was studying apologetics, yes, partially for me, but I had to have answers for this guy. He wasn't even a Christian and he's in a Christian ministry. I got to at least get him to the point that he believes in God. Okay, let's start there. So... Over time, God really gave me a heart for Ryan and we'd play basketball together. We'd have conversations together. It was almost humorous how negative he was. He was always one of those guys that was just like, I hate this place, yada, yada, yada. God's not real. All these different things that I hadn't, all I could do is laugh because like, I can't believe you're saying this and you're here. Um, so anyways, over time, uh, as I'm investing into Ryan, he ends up leaving. He ends up doing something dumb um, and, and, and he left. And, you know, I was thinking about that, like, man, God, why'd you have me waste all that time in talking to this guy and investing into him and sharing these things and studying for the purpose of investing into him? Like, God, like, really, man, it hurt, you know, it, it, it broke my heart. Then about a year and a half later, I was working for Patmos. I saw him at the church and he had come back to Calvary House. I was like, Ryan, you're back. He left not believing in God. He comes back and he tells me, he's like, yeah, man, God took me through some crazy stuff. It was crazy that he even just said, God took me through something. So I'm like, okay, what happened? He said, well, I was living with this girl that was hooked on meth. And I think she was like schizophrenic. She was kind of crazy and she would, you know, try to kill herself and all these different things. And one night, late at night, for some reason, somehow I said to her, you need Jesus. He's like, I don't know why I said that. But I said, you need Jesus. And then I said, I need Jesus. We need Jesus. And he's like, oh my gosh, 
This is it. This is the answer. Look at what's happening in my life. It took him to experience pretty much the epitome of evil before he was able to recognize Jesus. And he came back and he told me, he's like, dude, so many of the things that you said, like the Lord brought those to memory. And dude, I know Jesus is real. I saw Satan. I know that Jesus is real. And he came to the Lord and he was passionate about it that second time coming to Calvary house. And from what I know today, he's still doing well, but it was this amazing thing. It's like, wow, God, you brought the most unlikely candidate into my life, the person that's completely opposite of me. And you use those little conversations. And now he's in love with you. That's, that's amazing. And I could have been like, nah, dude, not stone face. I want smiley face. Okay, come on. But that's not who God had for me. And he used all of this. Now in my time investing in Ryan, there were so many things that he had. At first I saw the negative as we so often do. We see the, uh, stone face. He's not like me, all these different things. But as I got to know him, God gave me opportunity to see certain things in him that he really brought to the body of Christ. He was an excellent leader. He was I mean, he led people the wrong way, but he was very gifted in, in, in leadership. And I be, was able to see some of these giftings. He was kind of a skeptic, but actually it ended up making him a better student because he was always questioning things. He wouldn't just take somebody's word for it. He would look into it. So I started seeing these things like, dude, man, when this guy gets sold out, he's going to be gung-ho for the Lord. And sure enough, he was. And that's what Jesus does for us. See? When we're looking at people who we should disciple, we can't focus on the negative and even who they are, who they were. We got to look past it and see who they were going to be because that's how the Lord views each and every one of us. That's how he viewed Peter when he first encountered him. If you look at John chapter one, verse 42, he encounters Peter for the very first time and he says, your name is Simon, son of Jonah, but you shall be called Cephas. What is he saying there? Your name is Simon. You are prideful. You are arrogant. You are unholy. And you're not fit to follow me. But I don't just see Simon. I see Cephas. I see the rock. I see who you're going to become. I see that you're going to be a pillar for the faith. That you're going to be used in an amazing way to help equip and edify the body of Christ and make it become what I want it to become. Jesus, that first interaction, he doesn't say, this was your past. I see you as, as an adulterer or, a, or, or an addict or, a, or someone that um, is prideful and lustful and all these things. No, I see past that. I see who you're going to become. And we have to have that same heart as we're investing into people that we don't see who they are. We don't see even their past. We see past all that. We see, dude, there's, God can do a lot with you. These are the gifts. These are the talents. These are the strengths that you have. And we have to view them in light of who they can become. Bringing it back to Philemon. Look what he says. A prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. Wait, Timothy is Paul's brother, like blood brother? No. He means a brother in the Lord, right? So what Paul's essentially doing, he's bringing Timothy, his spiritual brother alongside to invest in Philemon. I'll explain further, but let me make the point. Third point, discipleship exists in the context of family. Discipleship exists in the context of family. 
First of all, we have to remember what Jesus said in regards to what it means to be in the family of God. He said that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, uh, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is essentially my family member. In Luke's gospel, he says, whoever hears the word and does it, that's, that's my, that's my family. Those who are seeking the Lord, those who are seeking to do what God's called them to do, that's really my family. It's not always our blood family, it's the family of God. And that's what Paul is referring to Timothy as. It's not his blood brother, he's his spiritual brother, okay? So, <clears throat> discipleship exists in the context of family. This is important to note. Discipleship isn't even isn't always a one-on-one thing. It's not always just a one-on-one conversation with someone. That can be part of it, but the Lord uses family. We're called the family, or sorry, the family of God, the body of Christ for specific reasons. There are different things to learn from different people amongst the body. Okay, God's maybe gifted me in certain areas, but without someone that's more administrative or without someone that has different giftings than me, I'm not, we're not going to look as much like Jesus. Okay, what do I mean? Like, if I have the gift of pastorship and the gift of teaching and I'm exercising those gifts, yeah, that's great, but I need my wife with that gift of administration to keep me level-headed to keep me organized, to keep me operating in what God has called not me to do, but us to do as a body of Christ. See, we can learn so many different things from different members of the body because God's equipped us differently. And each member, each member is important to the body of Christ. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul, the whole epistle, sorry, this whole chapter in this epistle, he's speaking about the spiritual gifts, okay? And he talks about unity and diversity and people have different gifts, but they're all supposed to not be used just for the individual, but as a whole, that which that's what brings the body of Christ, that's what brings Christ the most glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, it says, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Yes, we're all called to make up the body of Christ as a whole. Me by myself, uh, I might represent Jesus a little bit, but us as a whole, we represent Jesus much more accurately. That's why we're called his body. And it says we're individuals, sorry, and members individually. See, every person and every member is important. I'm not the most important because I'm the pastor or the teacher. Each and every member of the body is equally important. This church is not going to thrive if the body isn't working together to be the body of Christ. In that, knowing that every member is important, every member deserves discipleship. Even the one that you might not want to invest into. Every single member is not only in need of, but deserves to be invested into, even if you don't necessarily get along with them. And look what he says back in Philemon. And Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. So he calls him 
a brother, then he calls him a friend. You know what's really interesting about this epistle? Okay, how does Paul usually introduce himself most of the time in epistles? What does he say? Paul, either a bondservant or the apostle, right? He doesn't introduce himself as the apostle in this epistle, and I think it's for a specific reason. Usually when Paul introduces himself as an apostle, it's because he's trying to communicate to that specific church that, hey, God's given me a certain measure of authority. Okay, God gave the apostles, he sent them out personally, Jesus sent them out personally, and he gave them an extra measure of authority. What authority was that? Well, uh, much of it had to do with, yes, building the foundation of the church, but also writing these epistles. And Peter tells us actually in Second Peter that Paul's writings were indeed inspired by God. The things that Paul wrote, that was Jesus speaking directly through him. And that's why we have them today. But look what he does. He doesn't say Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He calls him his friend. Why? Because he's not trying to lord his authority over Philemon. He's not trying to exercise this lordship so he can manipulate Philemon into getting him to do what he wants. No, he's like, dude, this is, this might be my disciple, but he's also my friend. And he comes to him on terms of relationship. And where do you think he learned this from? He learned it from Jesus. If you look at John chapter 15, verse 15, John 15, 15, Jesus says to the disciples, no longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I learned from my father. I have made known to you. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants. I call you friends. You're my You're my friends. We have a relationship. That relationship has developed over time. See, discipleship has to exist in the context of relationship. If we don't have a relationship with someone, then they're probably not going to listen to everything that we have to tell them. Because it's not just, this is what the Bible says. It's, I care about you. You're my brother. You're my sister. You're my friend. And it's not just, I want you to change because this is what the Bible says, I'm deeply concerned about your spiritual walk and I want to see to it that you become what you've been called to become. So he comes to him on this relational level. I'm coming to you as a friend. That's how we have to come to people. It's not, I might be a pastor, but I don't ever in any conversation say, Tanner, the pastor of Jesus Christ, this is what you should do. You know, I don't come and say, hey, I'm a pastor, so you should listen to me. No, it has nothing to do with that. It's like, no, dude, you should listen to me. Uh, yes, because this is the word of God, but because I care about you, because I'm your friend and I want the best for you. I'm not just speaking the truth to you just to speak the truth. I'm speaking the truth to you in love because I actually love you. And that's what Philemon is doing here. He comes to him on the terms of friendship, but he also says not only friend, look at that second part of verse one. We'll get through four verses soon. Um, <laughs> he says, and fellow laborer, fellow laborer. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means Paul's a laborer. Laborer for what? He's laboring in the work 
of the ministry because ministry, it takes work. And he calls Philemon his fellow laborer. He's saying he is working alongside me for the increasing of the kingdom of heaven. He's my fellow laborer. He's working with me to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which brings me to the fourth point. Discipleship is hard work. Discipleship is hard work, fellow laborer. It takes work. It's not just something that happens. It's not always easy. Often it's difficult. You remember the heart of the people in the book of Nehemiah when they went back to restore the city, specifically to build the wall. In Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 6, it wasn't just Nehemiah leading. It says the people had a mind to work. They got into that situation, they volunteered or whatever, recognizing that it was going to take a lot of work to build the wall, to rebuild what had been destroyed by the Babylonians. They had a mindset that it was going to take work. That's the same mindset that we have to have when we're engaging in discipleship. It's not just going to be easy. It's not just going to happen. It's not like somebody's just going to show up in your house, you're going to tell them one thing and poof, They're changed. That's not what happens. It's going to take effort. It's going to take energy. And it's going to get frustrating. We see even Jesus, he got frustrated with the disciples. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 17, I love this. It's so encouraging for me. I feel like he says this to me all the time. Matthew chapter 17, verse 17. Then Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. The Lord speaking to the disciples. How, how long shall I bear with you? Man, this has taken a lot of work. This has taken a lot of effort. If Jesus was brought to this point with the disciples, then we can rest assured that we will be too. It gets frustrating when you invest in people and they don't always change. That's why I believe Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, he says, preach the word, okay, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Okay, some of us don't mind preaching the word. Others of us, we, we love to convince people that the word is true. Some of us, we just absolutely love rebuking and exhorting people. Okay, but he says, do all these things with long suffering. Why? Because sometimes you tell someone the same thing over and over and over again and nothing changes. They continue to do the same thing and that can get us frustrated. But he says, do all these things with long suffering. What does that word long suffering mean? It means just that, suffer long. Suffer long while you're investing into people because it's going to take that so often for any change to ever take place because they might see you long suffering with them and that might be the greatest thing they get out of the discipleship. Regardless of what you said to them, regardless of the good word you had for them, you, they see the character of Christ in you and they're like, dude, why does this person not give up on me? When we consider how the Lord never gives up on us, doesn't that kind of like melt your heart? Now think about it when it's another person and they share that same heart 
and they long suffer with you. Even when you don't show any signs of change, that could be the very character quality that wins them over and changes their heart, them seeing Christ in you, the hope of glory. Philemon chapter, sorry, verse 2. He says, to the beloved Aphia. Now, Aphia is believed to be Philemon's wife, okay? We don't know for sure, but that's what the belief is, okay? Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, okay? Archippus, uh, quite possibly, many suggest that he was the son of Philemon, okay? So, Philemon likely leading this church that's in their house, okay? Uh, this is maybe his wife. This may be his son. We don't know for sure, but one thing we do know for sure, he refers to Archippus as his fellow soldier. What does that mean? That Archippus, whether he's a son or not, he's in the battle with Paul. What battle? The, the spiritual battle. The spiritual battle that we're all called to engage in. He says it like this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. 2 Timothy 2, 3. He says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one entangled in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Look what he says there. We're called to be soldiers. We've been enlisted, and some of us don't always realize that, but when we accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord, we essentially made him commander-in-chief. We said, hey, you're our commander, and we're your soldiers to accomplish your will on this earth. We're all called to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't really think of myself as a soldier, okay? Many of you probably don't either, but we have to have that soldier mentality. Why? Because we have to recognize we have a purpose on this earth and the purpose is to fight this spiritual battle and the greatest weapon that the enemy will use against us in trying to take us out of warfare is that thing. He says, do not be entangled with the affairs of this life, meaning don't get caught up with the ways of the world. Remember, you're here as a soldier to engage in a battle. This life is temporary. You're fighting for an eternal commander. Don't lose sight of the fact that you're in battle because when you lose sight of the fact that you're in battle, that's when the tendency to fall can happen. And that's what happened to probably the greatest soldier that we read about in the Bible, David, King David. Right in Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, it says that basically, as David was king, when everybody went off to fight in the war, he was supposed to be there and he stayed home. Why did he stay home? Started giving into the comforts and conveniences of being a king. He forgot that he was supposed to be a soldier, even though he was a king. He was called to fight the battle. He stays home. And then what happens? Havoc, right? Bathsheba, Uriah gets killed. All these different things just because he lost the soldier mentality. I forgot I was a soldier. And just one slip up, it leads him into all this other sin. We're called to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. This life isn't about... um, Sorry, our pursuit of happiness. 
It's not just about how good can we make our lives. It's about being a good soldier for Jesus Christ. He's more concerned with our holiness than our happiness because he knows that true happiness can only be experienced through true holiness. He wants to experience us to experience joy, not just this temporary happiness that lasts for a moment. He wants to give us eternal happiness, eternal joy. So we have to engage as good soldiers. See, recognizing that we're a good soldier of Jesus Christ is going to look like something. It's going to look like waging warfare. And that's what he tells Timothy as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, 1 Timothy 1, 18, There, sorry, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Have faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, has suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I deliver to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Okay, remember he said, wage the good warfare. And then look what he says. Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks be made for all men. It says, wage the good warfare. What does that look like? First of all, it looks like praying. See, battles are won and lost on our knees. They're literally won through the power of prayer, which brings me to the fifth point. Discipleship requires diligence in prayer. Discipleship requires diligence in prayer. We got to pray for those that we're discipling. Think about this. We don't always look at prayer as waging war. We look at prayers like this is just something that we do because we're called to do, or maybe I even want to do, but it's literally a weapon to engage in spiritual warfare. We pray for those that we're investing into. It's the greatest way to bear their burdens. See, waging the good warfare in prayer uh, can become wearisome. Um, what was that movie that just came out? The war movie, Hacksaw Ridge. <laughs> Anybody see that, Hacksaw Ridge? No? Great movie, okay? This guy, I won't ruin the story. He saves a bunch of people. It's in the previews. He saves a bunch of people, but this dude is weary, let me tell you. You get weary from waging in war. Has anyone ever literally fought in a war? Maybe? No? Um, well, me neither. So <laughs> hoping maybe somebody. Um, regardless, we see that waging war, it can cause us to become wearisome. That guy, he was so tired of saving all these different people, but he kept going. See, waging the good warfare through prayer, it can lead us to becoming weary too. Why? We keep praying for this person to get saved, or we keep praying for God to change this person, and nothing's happening. We're like, God, I'm so tired of praying for this person. But remember, the Lord intercedes on our behalf and he doesn't get tired of praying for us. We can't grow weary waging the good warfare. We can't grow weary while praying for people. Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. He says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. 
Now that connects to prayer as well. If we keep praying, if we don't give up, if we persist, if we're diligent, we'll reap something eventually. The only way we'll be able to do this is by the power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own strength. Philemon, verse 3, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Says, grace to you and peace. Grace, uh, that was the word used for the Greeks. Grace be with you. Grace to you. And peace, shalom, that was the word used for the Jews. So Paul, in many of his epistles, he says, grace and peace be with you. And he lists grace before peace. Why? Because we can't have the peace of God if we don't accept the grace of God. So it starts with experiencing God's grace in salvation. Then we get to experience the peace that surpasses all knowledge and understanding. See, grace and peace We have to experience peace before we can extend peace. We have to experience grace before we can extend grace. You can't give grace if you're not receiving grace, right? I need to be receiving grace if I'm going to extend grace. So if you're under the impression that you don't need grace anymore, then that's going to affect your discipleship. You're going to be so focused on communicating the truth to people that often you'll push them away. If you don't find the balance between grace and truth, which Jesus did, then we're going to be overbearing in a sense. What do I mean? So I need to let people know that I'm experiencing the grace of God, that I'm not perfect You guys all know that I'm not perfect. Some of the reasons you know that is because from the pulpit, occasionally I share my imperfections and I'll say I'm wrestling with God about this or I'm struggling with this specific thing or whatever it may be. Why do I do that? Yeah, it's for relatability, but I want you to know, hey, I need God's grace too. And you need God's grace too. We all need God's grace. As I'm experiencing God's grace, I'm more likely going to communicate gracious messages. So I might say to someone that I'm discipling, hey, this is how I messed up. And this is how God had grace on my life. But I have to be very discerning in what I'm communicating. See, I can't just go invent all my emotions and all my situations and everything that I'm walking through on the person that I'm discipling because I have to maintain spiritual, uh, sorry, moral authority as well. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11, it says, a fool vents all his feelings. A fool vents all his feelings. So I'm not going to just go up to someone that's in need or comes to me for discipleship or counseling, and they tell me what they're going through, and I'm just like, yeah, me too. I'm going through all this stuff. And It's like, no, 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 no. The Bible says you're a fool if you do that. You have to be discerning. Now, I might share something about my life that helps them realize, hey, I'm, I'm with you, and I'm, uh, I got something that, that God's working on me too, and he's been bestowing grace on me as well, but I have to be very careful in what I communicate. Like, I'm not just going to say, hey, I'm struggling with this thing because my wife thinks my car is a trash can. And she is just unloading all her trash into my car. And this thing about my wife, I just can't stand it. Now, I'm joking there. Okay. 
<laughs> That'd be extreme. I wouldn't want to dog my wife in front of someone that I'm investing into, but I might say something about the fact that, hey, we ain't perfect either. We have arguments sometimes. Sometimes there's conflict and we got to work through those things. And if we do it the right way, we know that Jesus will make us more like him because he uses arguments. He uses conflict to let us know that we're not perfect. And we do need to change and we do need to grow together. So I might use loose examples with someone that I'm investing into uh, specifically as it pertains maybe to a, a married couple, but I'm not just going to unload all my junk on them that they have to bear my burdens. It's being discerning in what we're communicating. Now, God, he teaches us through grace. It's Titus 2, 11 to 14. We won't get into it. Essentially, it says grace teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Um, it continues. But grace, we know, is a, is a teacher for us to not continue in sin, but to repent of sin. That's the biblical understanding of grace. But he doesn't just teach us with grace. He also teaches us with truth. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. He was both. Okay, so Jesus, he found the perfect balance. He knew when to speak hard truth and he knew when to be gracious. We just saw it last week. He spoke hard truth to that Gentile woman, right? He called her a little dog. First, he wouldn't answer and then he calls her a little dog. He spoke hard truth to her. So often he spoke hard truth to the scribes and Pharisees because they were so far away from the truth. He knew he had to focus on truth with them because they needed to know the truth. They thought they knew the truth, but they didn't. But when we see him in like John 8 with the adulterous woman and throughout the gospels, often with the disciples, he's so gracious with them. He's so forgiving. He's so inviting. He would have dinner and meals with sinners. He had that perfect balance between grace and truth. So as Jesus is teaching us through grace and teaching us through truth, we're called to teach others through grace and truth. Not just one, not just the other, but somewhere in the middle. And that's going to be different for different people. Why? Because some people aren't ready to hear the truth. Some people aren't ready in their discipleship. They just came to the Lord and, and truth is a new thing for them. And maybe you need to be a, little, be a little more gracious and let them eventually grow in the truth. Now, that doesn't mean that you should lie to them or not tell them the truth, but be careful about how much truth you dump on them. We got to find that balance between grace and truth. And it only happens through, through prayer, through praying for that specific. What does this person need right now? Do they need grace and they need truth? What combination or balance of grace and truth do they need? So he says, grace to you and peace from God, our father, Look what he says, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is pivotal, maybe the most pivotal statement he makes here. He calls Jesus Christ what? Lord. If you want to be a discipler, then you need to know who your Lord is. If I want to disciple people, I have to recognize who I'm answering to. It's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, he's not my suggester. It's not like, man, that was a good word. Nice suggestion, Jesus. I know you called me to change in that area, or I know you're encouraging me in this area, or whatever it may be. It's a good suggestion. We can't take the Lord's word as suggestion. We have to take it as what it is. It's, it's a command. 
You say, do these things, love people, whatever it is, humble yourself, whatever the word may be. But for us to be effective disciplers, we have to recognize who our Lord is. We have to convince ourselves that saying no to Jesus isn't an option. Now, again, this isn't to bring any judgment or criticism because sometimes we do say no to Jesus. Sometimes we don't listen to him and what he has to tell us, but we got to get away from that and really treat him like he's Lord of our lives. That's one of the reasons Paul was such an effective, maybe the biggest reason why he was such an effective discipler was because he made Jesus his Lord. So the things that he was doing, it was just an acts of obedience to Jesus Christ. Verse four, this is where we'll close. I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. Again, he says, we see here that he's praying for Philemon and he's praying for those in his household. We always need to be in prayer for those who we're investing into. God's going to do more through our prayers for people than he is through the conversations that we have. And not only that, he'll change our hearts for people. We might be like, eh, I don't really want this disciple or this person to invest in you. And God's like, no, no, that's the one that I've given you. Pray for him and I'll change your heart towards him. You know, prayer is so effective in discipleship. I'll tell you, uh, most of the conversations that I have, whether it be counseling or discipleship, I'm praying while the person is speaking to me. Now, not audibly and interrupting them. Like they start talking to me. Hey man, I'm really going through this. Oh Lord, blah, 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 blah. No, no, I don't do that audibly and like throw them off. But I'm like going, God, I don't know what to say. Uh, Lord, give me wisdom from above. I don't want to just say the right thing that sounds good and speak Christianese. What's from you? What do you want to say to this person? Because they're telling me something and they're saying this is the issue, but you know the real issue. And as we're praying to the Lord, even in those conversations, so often he'll give us wisdom from above and get us to the heart of the issue. For example, there's so many people that I've had the opportunity to disciple that come off very prideful and arrogant. And they come off like, oh, whatever, I know it all, I am it all, whatever. And you can look at them and be like, dude, that person's prideful. They need to be humbled. Let me give them a bunch of scriptures about humility. But that's not the real problem. In most cases, those people that come off prideful and arrogant and are always talking about themselves, the problem is really insecurity. They're not secure in their relationship with the Lord. They feel like they have to put on this persona and make you believe that there's something that they really don't feel like they are. And only through prayer will God give you discernment like that. No, 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 that's not their issue. You don't need to tell them about themselves and and tell them to humble themselves. You just need to love on them. They're just insecure. They need to find security in Christ and they need to find security in the body of Christ. And through that security, that's where the change is going to happen. So prayer is so important as we're discipling people. And lastly, we can't pray out of obligation. We got to pray from a place of love. It's 1 Peter chapter 5. This is where we'll end for real this time. 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, the elders who are among you, verse one, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. This is the exhortation. 
Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those who entrusted those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Look at what Peter says here. And Peter was a a messed up guy, right? God had transformed his life. And this is what he's saying, encouraging the body of Christ, encouraging specifically leaders. And he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, not by compulsion, but willingly. Don't just do it out of like obligation, like I have to, but be willing, have a heart to do it. Do it eagerly, be an example to them because ultimately you answer to the Lord. See, this sums up the heart of a shepherd. This little text here sums it up. This text sums up the heart of a discipler. We might not be there yet, but it's what God has called each of us to do. Many of you might think, hey, I'm not called to be a minister. I'm not called to be a pastor. I'm not called to be this. That's okay. But we're all called to invest in people. We're all called to disciple people on some level. And I completely understand people have full-time jobs. People have families. Tanner, you're not being understanding. I got too much on my plate. I'm just speaking what the Lord's speaking. This is what he's called us to do, to make disciples. And we see here in this text, this is the heart in which he wants us to do it with, not with compulsion, but willingly, eagerly, lovingly, having a desire to do it. Because see, the art of discipleship has to start with a heart for discipleship. If we don't have the heart for others and investing in others, then the art of discipleship is absolutely useless. So if your reason maybe is like, I really just don't love people. I don't really want to invest in people. I encourage you to pray for the Lord to give you a heart for people. And if you feel just like ill-equipped and not ready, hopefully this teaching helped out a little bit. The next one will help even a little bit more, but I want to encourage you. It's what we're all called to. If you're afraid, perfect love, cast out fear, pray for boldness and God will give you the boldness to do what he's called you to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this epistle. God, we thank you for your calling on our lives, Lord. Sometimes it can be intimidating. Sometimes it can be a little scary, but it's what you've called us to. And God, anything you call us to, if we choose obedience, you'll you'll help to make it prevail. God, it's not about what we bring to the table. It's all about uh, what you bring to the table. And that's everything, Lord. Um, You can empower um, foolish, um, weak, abased, despised people to accomplish amazing, world-changing things. God, but it starts with that willingness, and we know that, Lord. So I pray that you would give us that willingness and give us that desire to do what you've called us to do. In your name, amen.